Well, if you will, uh, take out your Bibles and let's turn over to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, we are going to be looking at the entirety of chapter 1 this evening, verses 1 through 12. I know that Pastor Don fed you well from the first four verses of this chapter, but we're going to move back all the way to verse 1 for the sake of context, especially as it prepares us for the Lord's table, and then, Lord willing, prepares us to tackle chapter 2 next week as it concerns the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so, people of God, hear now the Word of God. Again, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith, steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for it. Well, this past week I was uh, doing a doctoral class at at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. And this past week we were uh, tackling some hard counseling situations and circumstances, especially as it pertains to the people of God within the, the local visible church. And one of the things that kept being repeated by these experts that we were Zooming with throughout the week is that there is something to be admired about the church because of the quiet affirmations that we give to one another as we sojourn in this sin-filled world together. Now, most of the experts were not from the the Deep South Bible Belt, and so they, they constantly made a comment about how the Southerners, like, like us, we would, be better, we would be better at giving these, uh, these thanksgivings, I guess we'll use Paul's words, these thanksgivings for one another, these affirmations uh, 
to one another because it's the, the proper southern thing to do, right? We, we, we know how to uh, extend a friendly hand and, and extend a friendly hello and to, to even encourage one of our struggling brothers and sisters. But one of the things that I, I wish that these experts would have said as they were kind of picking on uh, southern Bible Belt Christians is that not only is it ingrained into our culture, but it's also one of those things that comes along more abundantly when we walk close with Jesus. And, and that's held out to us here in verses 3 and 4 because it's Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy who are giving thanks to God because of the faith that exists here within the Thessalonian church. In fact, as many commentators have said about this text, they are celebrating the marketed difference that grace has in the life of a church. And these words of affirmation come from Paul to encourage the believers so that they might, as he said in 1 Thessalonians, grow more and more into the image of God's Son to be sanctified as they ought to be. But it's interesting, I think, how Paul writes here in verse 3. As he's celebrating the marketed difference that grace has within the people of God, he says that we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Now this ought here, this second word in verse 3, is not as we would use this word, we ought to do this like we know that it's the good thing, but we may or may not do it. Actually, what Paul is saying is that by the gospel, we are obligated to give thanks for the marketed difference that grace makes in the lives of our brothers and sisters within the church. In fact, he's writing in such a way that he is challenging us, I believe, to, to say that it is our duty to give thanks for the marketed difference that grace makes within the life of our brothers and sisters in the church. And he says very quickly that it is right to do so, as is right. He's saying that it's a worthiness, an appropriateness. It's the only suitable response of seeing grace working in the lives of other believers here amongst the people of God. And I think about that for a minute. When we see the evidence of God working in someone's life, Paul is saying that we have an obligation, a duty to give thanks. And not only are we to give thanks to God, this vertical relationship that he speaks of in verse 3, we give thanks to God first, but he's also saying in verse 4 that we, we give thanks on a, on a horizontal field. We give thanks to God vertically, but then also horizontally we give thanks and we boast about this faithfulness, this marketed difference that grace makes in the life of the believers to all the churches of God. And we have to understand something about this boasting that Paul is doing here in verse 4. He is not saying, because I planted this church, because I preached well, because I appointed good elders and deacons, because I set up the next pastor, 
there is faithfulness abounding in the life of the Thessalonians. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's a marketed difference of grace from God in the life of this church. And he's saying we thank God for it, but also we boast in the work that God is doing to one another. One of the things that we have implemented in our presbytery, the PD Presbytery, just at our last meeting are these these kind of extended times of, of updating and prayer requests by individual churches. We do, I think, six one meeting and then seven the next or something along those lines. And, and it's, it's really a, a good time of fellowship because not only do we get to praise God for what He's doing within these churches, but we get to pray, and we'll talk about prayer here in just a few minutes, we get to, to pray that the, the means of grace would bring increase stability, faithfulness in these churches that surround us. That's something of which the Apostle Paul is speaking. He gives gives thanks to his Lord because of the faithfulness that exists in Thessalonica, but he also gives these words of affirmation to churches surrounding so that they might be encouraged too. And this boasting is not, again, boasting in something that he has done or even in something that the Thessalonians have done. It's what the Lord is doing amongst them. And I think that is something that we ought to practice. These small words of affirmation, these quiet words of affirmation. And and how do we do that? Well, I think we can learn something from Paul. In fact, as I was reading John Stott this afternoon, as he writes... uh, a great commentary on this second letter to the Thessalonian church. He says, if we follow Paul's example in giving thanks, we will avoid both congratulation, which corrupts, and silence, which discourages. Think about, the, think about what, what John Stott's saying. Very often we, we think those are really our only two options, don't we? Congratulations ultimately run the risk of swelling egos. Oftentimes when we congratulate someone for a job well done, we'll say, don't let this go to your head. You've said that before, right? Don't let this go to the head. But what are we recognizing? The sinful inclination of the flesh is to take all of these congratulations and to heap praise upon ourselves. And so maybe that's you. Or maybe you're so worried about egos being... I guess, heaped upon somebody, that you sit in silence. And your silence then discourages. Instead, what Scott says is we can affirm and encourage people in the most Christian of all ways. I thank God for you. Isn't that exactly what Paul is doing? I thank God for you. This way, says John Stott, We affirm without flattering, and we encourage without puffing up. And so I think the first thing that we need to realize here is that there is a real marketed difference by God's grace in the people of God, and we need to praise God for it, and we need to thank God for it, and we need quiet affirmations amongst the people of God in the local church so that we might build one another up. But you notice what... What Paul begins to give thanks for is there at the kind of the middle of verse 3. First he says, I'm giving thanks to God for you as is right because your faith 
is growing. Now, one of the things that we need to understand about faith in and of itself is that it's not a stagnant thing. Faith always should be growing. It's not static. It's, this is a very uh, academic way of saying it. It's not a blob of spirituality that just sits there. It's, it's a tree that flourishes by the streams of living water, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 1. And so we need to understand that Christian faith is a, a living thing. It grows. It needs to be tended to and, and cultivated and cared for, developed, matured. We, we, we need... To do this, and how do we do this? Well, it's, it's simply by the ordinary means of grace. I always feel like I sound like a broken record when I say these things. But the ordinary means of grace, the regular attendance of public worship, both morning and evening on the Lord's Day, the daily reading of God's Word and prayer. If you neglect these things, no wonder your faith is, is stunted and, and withering and fragile and fleeting. We can see how... Paul is, we can see how Paul is recognizing the, the means of grace within the life of the church. Why does, he, why does he underline, emphasize the means of grace in the life of the church? He says, because God is doing it. It's, it's nothing that I have done. It's nothing that the Thessalonians are doing. It's simply what God is working through. And what has He promised to work through? The preaching and the reading of the Word the prayers of the people, and the sacraments. That is the, the means in which He has promised to work through. And Paul is giving thanks because he is doing it. He is keeping his promises as he is building up, as he is growing up the faith of these Thessalonian believers. But also you notice that he says the, the love for every one of you, for one another, is increasing. Now, something's interesting to me here because what we, what we need to remember as, as we're whole Bible Christians, we need, to, we need to think back to our time in 1 Thessalonians. And if you would just flip a page or two back in your Bibles, you'll see in chapter 3, verse 12, that Paul begins to pray that the love that the Thessalonians have for one another will grow. And now he's given thanks for answered prayers. You know, one of the greatest things that I thought that I'd, I've ever seen is, is dear Sarah Lee's Bible. She used the same Bible for like 30, 40 years. Had to. And in the margins of these, this Bible, on, on these pages, she would write out a prayer request. And she'd write the date that she prayed this request. And then she would go back and she would write the date that the Lord answered it. And page after page, you would, you would flip this Bible and it would be full of answered prayers. And she would even write little phrases like, Praise the Lord. Thank you, God. And that's what Paul's doing. He knows that he has prayed this prayer. Now he's given thanks for the Lord answering it. And then next he's praying for the perseverance, the steadfastness is there in verse 4. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and the inflictions that you are enduring. 
So he's saying this growing faith, this increasing love, and now this steadfastness, this perseverance in affliction is what we ought to praise God for. What we are, we are under an obligation to praise God for in the life of these Thessalonian believers. And it's that third point, this steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and afflictions that Paul now turns his attention to in verses 5 through 12. Because he says if we want to persevere through affliction, we need to remember that our Lord is returning. Now Paul will tackle this return of our Lord in chapter 2. It's probably some of the most complicated verses in all of the New Testament. Especially within Paul's writings. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and this idea of the man of lawlessness. But very generally, he tackles the second coming of Christ here in verses 5 through 12. And he tells us in verses 5 through 12, if we are going to persevere through afflictions, through persecution, trials, and sufferings, we need to remember that Jesus is coming again. And he tells us that we need to remember that for two reasons. The first is that Jesus is going to come and settle all the score against his enemy. Look at verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed to heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. That's some strong language, isn't it? And yet, it declares to the people of God, keep your chin up. Persevere. Remain steadfast because the battle that is raging around us has already been won in Christ Jesus. You, you, you see how Paul writes, don't you? It, it's as if we already know the outcome of the fight. And how do we know the outcome of the fight? Well, our Bible tells us, doesn't it? That as Christ comes, He came to defeat the works of the evil one. 1 John chapter 3. He has defeated sin, death, the devil himself. By dying on the cross for the sins of His people. By being resurrected from the grave because death's pangs could not hold Him. By ascending into the heavens and resting upon His throne. Sitting down at the right hand of the Father for the work that He was sent to do was now finished. It's that gospel message that is held forward to the whole world with the free offer of the gospel. But clearly... As Paul writes here, there will be those who do not know God, who do not obey the gospel, and it will be them who will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. There's no no downplaying that, is there? There's no dodging the implications. Jesus is coming back to judge both the living and the dead. And if we do not know Him as He is presented to us in the Gospel, if we do not hear His voice and obey it, 
it says, eternal destruction, consequences of our iniquities awaits. And I think that, you know, deep south Bible belt, we, we need to hear that message because so oftentimes we talk about the, the eternal destruction of our Lord and it kind of zips through our, our minds in one ear and out the other. It's like talking to, talking to my children. In one ear and out the other. We've heard that message before. We don't like hearing this message that God is just and judge. That God will cast His enemies into the eternal realm of the lake of fire away from His presence and away from His might, His ability to save. And yet, Paul is so clear, the way that you live now, what you believe now, has eternal consequences. We don't need to be too familiar with these warnings. There is consequences of of indifference, of unbelief that are everlasting. And, And Paul speaks with an urgency here. He he speaks in grave terms here so that we might understand that the eternal destruction that awaits the enemies of God will be forever one, will be away from Him two, and there will be no salvation three. But if you look at verse 10, there's good news for those who believe. There's good news for those who believe because he says on that day that he returns when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all those who believe because our testimony to you was believed to this end. We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says the encouragement, this twofold understanding of the returning of Christ is the battle belongs to the Lord and He's already won. One. But also two, that on the day of His coming, it will be a glorious, joyous moment in the life of the believer. A, a, a moment in the life of the believer that our hearts should be longing for, so much longing for that we should resolve even even now to persevere until that day comes. Paul's saying, just as he said in 1 Thessalonians, look, your Savior is on the way. He's on the way. And we need to press on until that bright day dawns before us, he's saying. And we need to press on and we need to pray. Again, that's in verses 11 and 12. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. You know, if we want the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to have power within our lives, within our families, within our church, we need to pray that the ordinary means of grace would bear fruit from this time into eternity here amongst us. We have no hope. We have no hope of growing in Christ-likeness, of seeing this marketed difference that, that grace has on the life of the believer unless we pray that the Lord by His power would do so. 
You know, again, as we prayed in the, in the pastoral prayer, the problem isn't that I, that I don't know how to live. The, the problem is that I'm not ignorant of what Jesus has commanded me to do as an individual. For the Adams family to do as a family. For what First Presbyterian ought to do as a church. It's not that we are ignorant of these facts. It's that our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. And therefore, we need to pray that the power of the Gospel, that the steadfast love of Christ, that His grace and mercy would, would save us from this body of death, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7. And so, Paul says that we must pray to this end. And what does those prayers look like? Well, it's prayers that the Lord would empower our resolve to live for His glory. It's prayers declaring that talk is cheap and we need to live as Christians. It's prayers asking for for grace to be more like Jesus. It's prayers asking for the ability to to live worthy of the calling of Christ. It's prayers that the Lord by His power and His Word and His Spirit might abundantly cause us to love one another. It's prayers that we would persevere no matter what trials and afflictions might come. It's prayers that the Lord's name might be made famous and be glorified here amongst us. That's the pattern that Paul's establishing here for us. We need to, we need to persevere. We need to press on. We need to pray that the power of grace would be at work within us. We need to pray that the means of grace would bear fruit here and beyond. We need to have a longing to grow in Christ's likeness. And thankfully, the Lord gives us the means to grow. The means to grow in grace. The means to grow in mercy. The means to grow in Christ's likeness. He gives us first the preaching of the Word. He gives us second the prayers of the people. And then He gives us third the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it's the Lord's Supper that we come to now, knowing that our God is present by His Spirit. This isn't just a a meal of remembrance. This isn't just a memorial. This isn't just a a motion in which the, the church moves through once a month. This is our Lord being present with us spiritually. John Calvin says, That in the preaching of the Word, we hear God speak from heaven. But at the Lord's table, He calls us up into the realms of heaven so that we might dine with Him, so that we might dwell with Him, so that we might commune with Him. And so this table isn't the table of First Presbyterian Church, nor is it the table of the Presbyterian Church in America. This is the Lord's table. And He invites all of those who believe upon Him to come and to feast. To come, taste and see that the Lord is good. How gracious is our God. That not only does He speak to us so that our ears might hear, but He puts the the Gospel before us so that we might touch it and smell it. See it and taste it. The Lord speaks to us in our whole being in which He has created us. And He reminds us that His body was broken and His blood was shed for those who believe. 
And so as you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, as you submit to Him as your Lord and Savior, you come. You come and be strengthened by the Gospel as we see it and as we feel it, as we smell it and as we taste it, just as we have just heard it. Knowing that our Lord by His Spirit is present. And as we often say as we come together on the Lord's Day, we never... We never come into the presence of the Almighty God and don't leave changed. So as we partake in this meal, I know it's not much for the physical body, but it is much for the spiritual body. Our Lord is strengthening us as we think back to His Son's atonement, His sacrificial death. But we also look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb where we don't get just an appetizer, but we get the best of the foods and the best of the wines so that we might eat and drink and be filled with Him for all eternity. And it will cause us, won't it, to long for that day. We long for the rich foods. We long for the sweet wines. We long for the presence of our God, that we might be with Him in communion forever and ever. If the elders would come, we'll pray. And then we'll partake in this simple meal as one body in Christ. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to come to this, your table. And we pray, Lord, that you would do a good work here amongst us by it. That you would, that you would as we eat of this bread, as we drink of this cup, that you will remind us of the Lord's death. That you will draw our attention, our eyes heavenward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will eat and drink and be filled with You and sweet communion with You for the rest of our days. Father, we thank You for our time gathered around this meal as one body in Christ Jesus. And we pray that You would work especially through it as Your Spirit here is present with us. We pray these things in Lord Jesus' name, our Savior, Your Son. Amen.